always measure twice. J.P. Morgan gets burned by 31-year-old. This is part two, lessons learned. Fitzgerald, it's Newhouse here. I need you in my office to discuss this frank debacle. Now. I gotta be honest. If I were J.P. Morgan, Senior Vice President Newhouse, I'd be pissed too. After all, J.P. Morgan just threw up an airball on the $175 million acquisition of Frank Financial. Frank was a consulting firm that helped college-bound students maximize financial aid awards. Let's pick up the conversation between Newhouse and the young J.P. Morgan associate Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald is the one who found the deal and is trying to push it to get J.P. Morgan to make the acquisition. Yes, sir. I'll be right there. So Fitzgerald, what the hell happened with this thing? It's the biggest mess I've seen in my 40 years of banking. Well, I need to fall on my sword, sir. In the rush to make sure we got the deal and it didn't go to Citibank or Merrill Lynch, we cut some corners on diligence. We never verified that the 4 million subscribers actually existed. In hindsight, we should have at least checked a sample big enough to give us confidence in the information. At a minimum, I should have had a summer intern make a few hundred phone calls to verify some names and addresses. At least it would have given us an indicator as to whether a deeper dive into the database was needed. Hmm. Unfortunate. Well, I don't know if you'll be able to keep your job, but, son, I like your honesty. If you remember one thing from this experience, what do you think it should be? Um, I don't know, sir. I'm a bit distraught at the moment. Understandable. Here is the lesson. Always measure twice. Well, well, well. What a mess. How could this happen at the biggest bank in the world? Simple. Greed, emotions, and other decision-making plagues crept into the deal and caused J.P. Morgan to commit the most preventable of the seven deadly stupidities. Let me say that again. The most preventable of the seven deadly stupidities. They failed to measure twice. Poor Fitzgerald. He thought he was doing the right thing. Let's go through the steps he took to get to this point. First, Fitzgerald had to secure the deal. Frank Financial was a hot property. It hired an investment banker. It had other bidders looking to acquire it. This was, this was tough. So just to secure the deal was a big deal. And you do that with what's called a letter of intent. And a letter of intent is a handshake between the buyer and the seller. You agree on a purchase price. You agree on other major terms like who's going to get an employment contract, things like that. Letter of intent might only be a page, sometimes two pages. It's non-binding except for one provision that's binding. It's called a no-shop, which means the seller for a period of time, typically 30 days, cannot talk to any other buyers. So JP Morgan is saying, hey, look, we're going to pay this price. We need 30 days of exclusivity. We can't have you shopping around trying to get a better deal for 30 days. Doesn't matter if a hundred other companies call you, you really can't talk to them at all. You tell them, I'm sorry, we're in a lockup. We can't talk to anybody. So that gives the buyer, JP Morgan, the opportunity to perform due diligence, investigate the representations put forth by the company. Were sales actually what they say they were? Do all these people really work here? Do all these customers really exist? 
And that's what happens. And at the end of that 30 days, JP Morgan has the option to send over binding documents. Let's memorialize this, sign it and do a deal and let's let money change hands. Or they can say, not for us, we're walking away. So JP Morgan went ahead, did the LOI, had their exclusivity, and then they signed a binding deal and sent over $175 million. Now, before they could actually sign the binding deal after the LOI, Fitzgerald has to go in front of what's called the investment committee. Okay, so now we have an LOI, we have the deal, it's ours if we want it, if you're JP Morgan. If we don't want it, we can walk away. But first, Fitzgerald has to go and get the $175 million out of the JP Morgan vault. And to do that, you go through the investment committee. Investment committee is the elders of the firm, might be a half a dozen people, maybe a dozen people. And they guard the firm's money because the firm's money sits in U.S. Treasury securities because they're risk free. The government will never default on, on its securities. The U.S. government will just print more money to pay interest or pay you back your debt. So that money is sitting making right now about 5% risk-free. And that 5% is used to pay bonuses, used to do a lot of things. So Fitzgerald has to go in and convince the investment committee to move money out of risk-free, making 5% into a risky acquisition because any acquisition is risky. So he has to go in and promise 25%, 35, 55, big numbers in order to convince uh, the investment committee to let some money loose here. And one of the methods he would use to do that is he would talk about the lifetime value of a customer. So Frank has 4 million customers. And the theory of this deal for JP Morgan is, gee, we're gonna acquire this customer base and we're gonna sell all of our products into this customer base. We sell every, every financial product under the sun, home mortgages, stock trading accounts, you name it, we have it. So a simple analysis would go something like this. Let's take one customer out of those 4 million and sell them one credit card. And I looked this up on NerdWallet, uh, credit card fees for just a general purpose credit card are about $100 a year. That does not include any interest. And interest is where all the money's made. $100 a year, and that's a 20-year-old out of this customer base, and we got him. One credit card, great, we're making $100. Uh, we are generally loyal to financial institutions uh, as a species. Humans don't like jumping around uh, to different financial institutions. So you can make an assumption that we're gonna keep that 20-year-old for life. Let's just use 50 years as an example. So that customer is gonna pay us $100 a year for 50 years. So that customer, that one customer is worth $5,000. Remember, one credit card, that's it. So what if we assume that 5% of the 4 million customers of Frank use one credit card, $100 a year? So 5% of 4 million is 200,000 customers paying us $100 a year. That's 20 million a year, just from one credit card. Over the 50 years, that's a billion dollars. 20 million a year for 50 years. So you can see how when you throw in car loans, home mortgages, stock trading accounts, everything else under the sun that JP Morgan sells, 
the $100 a year for a customer could become thousands or even tens of thousands. So the modeling and the presentation here probably was overwhelming that this 175 was a drop in the bucket in order to acquire um, this customer base. Let's, let's go through right now, listen to Fitzgerald make his pitch to the investment committee. Before we get started, I would like to thank the members of the investment committee for taking the time to listen to me about this extraordinary investment opportunity. The primary reason we like this acquisition is that it will give us greater reach into the population of college-bound young adults. We need more business from this Gen Z demographic. They all should be using us for credit cards, bank accounts, stock trading, car loans, and home mortgages. Even if we only capture a small piece of the four-plus million franc customers, this deal is a slam dunk. I heard that Citibank and Merrill Lynch were looking at the company as well. Let's hurry up and close before Charlie changes her mind and goes with a different buyer. I encourage the committee to vote for this deal and let us put some money to work. Thank you. So why, why is J.P. Morgan looking at doing such a small deal? That's the other question to ask here. If you ask people in business, they'll always tell you it's the small ones that'll kill you. And uh, J.P. Morgan is an enormous organization. And this is a little tiny startup. But J.P. Morgan had a directive. In 2020, the year before they did the acquisition, J.P. Morgan stock price languished at $100 a share all year. J.P. Morgan went on an acquisition spree in 2021. It fired up its investors. It did 45 acquisitions in 2021, more than any other year in its history. And guess what? Its stock price went from $100 to $170 a share during that time. So it really excited its investor base. And one of those deals was Frank Financial. And Frank, with Frank, you get Charlie Javis. And Javis was a dynamo. All right, look, 19 years old. She was in Fast Company Magazine as one of its most creative people, right? A few years later, she's in the Forbes 30 under 30 list of, you know, hot startup founders. Uh, she published... Uh, op-ed pieces in Wall Street Journal and other places. She was a whirlwind and she drove her company to startling growth. And that's what attracted buyers like J.P. Morgan. But why is growth so important? Because growth's a different animal. Growth is magic. Growth is the secret sauce. The entrepreneur that can build the product that people want to buy, that's the gold. That's the top of the food chain. Think about it. Bill Gates and Paul Allen at Microsoft, Sergey Brin, Larry Page at Google, Travis Kalanick at Uber. They all figured out the secret sauce and opened up a market that nobody else saw. And sales of their products skyrocketed. Once that's happening, you can bring in a whole bunch of Ivy League MBAs to micromanage the factory or tell you it's better to move the back office to the Philippines or India. Who cares a percent here or a percent there? Let's take an example of Amazon, okay? It went public in 1997. It didn't make a profit till 2004, eight years. Eight years as a public company, and every time they faced their investors, they said, yeah, we're still losing money, but the best is yet to come. But if you bought Amazon stock at its IPO in 1997 and held it 
through all those losses and all those promises, which mo most people would say it's a bullshit story, guess what? You made 30 times your money. 30 times your money. But why? Why wasn't it a bullshit story? Growth. Amazon had astounding growth. In 1996, the year before Amazon went public, it had 15 million in sales. In 1999, three years later, okay, 1996 had 15 million in sales, went public in 1997. In 1999, it had 1.6 billion. That's billion with a B like a boy. From 15 million to 1.6 billion in sales in three years. That's a hundred times increase in revenue in three years. Amazon CEO, Jeff Bezos, and he's the founder, right? He had the magic. He was the guy. Javis was in the same category. She was onto a hot market, right? College-bound young adults. What a juicy target market. 16 to 25-year-olds just starting their financial lives. Oh, man. I want to get my hands on those customers. And she had incredible growth. What's not to like? But the story comes unglued after we do a little investigating into how she achieved the staggering growth. Let's listen to a conversation she had with the data sciences professor. Data sciences professor, somebody who plays with big databases for a living. Hello, Professor Rodigan here. Charlie calling back. So here's what we are going to do. I need about 4 million fake addresses that will look real. You know, actual zip codes and town names that sound good. Well, that will be a bit of work. It will take me about four weeks and cost $18,000. Dude, that's a done deal. Thanks. Fraud. Fraud is a word we all use, and we use it incorrectly. None of us use the word fraud correctly. Fraud's a legal term. It's a concrete legal concept like murder, larceny, arson. Let's go to Luther. Luther's our in-house counsel. Uh, Luther, I know it's your first week on the job, but could you give us a definition of fraud? Hey, GP, you want to talk fraud? Well, in legal terms, fraud is the intentional use of deceit, a trick or some dishonest means to deprive another of their money, property, or a legal right. Think about Charles Ponzi. He promised investors returns on their money, but all he did was take money from new investors to pay the old ones. Fraud usually goes hand in hand with a simpler term I'm sure you've heard of, GP. It's called lying. Thank you, Luther. One of the main charges facing young Charlie Javis is fraud. Despite what looks like overwhelming evidence against her, it's been my experience that fraud is difficult to prove. Lawyers hate going after people for fraud. It's just so hard. They always seem to wiggle out. There's always some way they get out of it. It's a tough one. But right now, the prosecutors feel they have a strong case. And from what we know, the legal deck really does appear to be stacked against Javis. We shall see. After the deal closed and 175 million changed hands, JP Morgan knew right away something was wrong. Right away. This did not take a long time. A lot of people were walking around, Fitzgerald included, with real sick feelings in their stomach when they sent out a few hundred thousand emails and hardly any of them hit, re hit real email addresses or you know, got responses. So they knew this thing was a disaster right from the beginning. 
terrible feeling. Had they been more diligent, this mess never would have happened. Yeah, Fitzgerald was the deal champion. He was the one who went out and got the deal and he pushed the deal. He brought it into the investment committee. But in my book, the blame here falls to the investment committee. They're the elders of the firm. They were supposed to be stewards of the firm's money. Were they caught up in deal fever? Hey, we got to do a lot of deals this year. Our stock price is going up. Let's keep things going. They were supposed to be the ones that are rational and stop these things from happening. The decision-making at the investment committee should have went something like this. Even if we only capture a small piece of the four plus million franc customers, this deal is a slam dunk. I heard that Citibank and Merrill Lynch were looking at the company as well. Let's hurry up and close before Charlie changes her mind and goes with a different buyer. I encourage the committee to vote for this deal and let us put some money to work. Thank you. Fitzgerald. I have one question about this deal. Yes, Mr. Newhouse. What can I help you with? Wait a minute. What's that noise? Sorry, sir. That noise is my Apple Watch alarm. It warns me if my heart rate approaches 200 beats per minute. I see. Well, anyway, I was helping my grandson with his college applications, and I realized there are about 1.7 million college applicants each year. If Frank Financial was in business three years, that would be about 5.1 million total college applicants. If the company says it has more than 4 million customers, that means Frank was able to capture 80% plus of the market? Fitzgerald, I'm not buying it. Oh, I see. We will dig deeper on diligence and decide if this is something to bring back to this committee. Thank you for your time. But this would have been a better outcome. Fitzgerald would have emerged bruised, alive, and wiser. Kill the deal before it gains momentum. Don't let everybody start talking about how big the bonuses are going to be this year because of the acquisition. Kill it early with good diligence. JP Morgan should have looked at one piece of data that mattered. They should have measured twice. They shouldn't have just taken Frank's word for it. How did Frank capture a ridiculous 80% market share of college-bound young adults. Impossible. Just right off the bat, it's just impossible. The trial is set to begin in 2024. Javis probably looks at dozens of years in prison if convicted. She continues to claim she's innocent. This episode was produced and narrated by me, George Polari. Audio consulting by Christopher Perazio and music consulting by Jimmy Lorius of Kalu Calais. All of our recreations are based on our view of how things happened and are for illustrative purposes. And never forget, 80% of success is avoiding stupidity.